Welcome to the inaugural season of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekas-Wolf. Who is the most opinionated person you know on Twitter? And you can't say Donald Trump. I actually don't follow the opinionated accounts so much. I'm more of a Goldman Sachs elevator talk kind of guy. That must be why you're so funny, because you just listen to the things that are funny. I like to keep it a little lighter on Twitter because it's so serious all the time. There's a crew of people that I pay attention to on Twitter because I think that they're outspoken in a, like a purposeful way that educates the people that read them. And it just so happens that Hunter Walk is one of those personalities. I was pretty excited when you told me that we had a chance to talk to Hunter because he's got this iconic kind of avatar that is of him. But he's also constantly speaking out about what he likes and dislikes in the technology world, which is near and dear to my heart, and social issues, which is a pretty tough thread to pull. He actually comes from a liberal arts background, which we uh, you know spend some time talking about from podcast to podcast, but he's not an engineer by training. Uh, well, anybody that goes to a liberal arts school, we know has the potential to contribute into the world more meaningfully than anybody else. That's real news. That is, in fact, true. Uh, as a fellow liberal arts graduate, the two of us, uh, I think we can we can attest to that. Just look at where we are today. In a closet recording a podcast. Yeah, that's exactly what this kind of education will get you. Um, our guest today, Hunter Walk, is the, uh, the founder of a venture capital fund called Homebrew Ventures. Where did the term homebrew come from? Uh, the uh, the computer kits. The, uh, it's like the Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak thing. So a little bit of a throwback, which kind of is Hunter, right? Like he's a bit of a throwback and a Renaissance guy. Uh, well, you know, a Renaissance guy who was in one of the most powerful positions in, in technology just recently, he was the uh, head of product at YouTube. And so to a large extent, you know, controlled the direction of that company and what you see today and watch on YouTube. Um, he was one of the early Googlers. Right? And he worked on one of the other biggest products in the entire world that shapes a lot of what we interact with, the product of AdSense, how Google makes a lot of their money. And I really enjoyed how Hunter opened up about diversity and other issues during this interview. We hope you enjoy this interview with Hunter Walk. Hunter, I'd like to welcome you to the This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. This, this is indeed my life in Silicon Valley. Couldn't be any more life in Silicon Valley yeah, to have three guys in a closet uh, talking on the radio. This is so literal. You know, one of the things for us that we care quite a bit about as we start to explore more about Silicon Valley and its relationship into the world is to learn not just about who you are, but about where you grew up. So could you tell us, like, where in the world did you grow up? Yeah, so New York City, New York City suburbs, my, my upbringing. Yeah. Um, and I was there until until college, really. My parents met at NYU. I was a product, obviously, of that uh, relationship. And uh, I have a younger sister, and when she was born, we moved out to the suburbs on Long Island, uh, where my parents Ooh, where uh, still Island? remain. Uh, Great Neck? Yeah. So That's my very, family's in Long Beach. Yeah, so hom- North Shore, homogenous, Jewish. I grew up middle class in kind of an upper middle class neighborhood, and I thought that was actually a really good uh, lesson for me, especially, you know, sort of being out here and you see kind of the wealth being created by tech. There can be a lot of questions about, you know, does money accrue to people who work hard? Does money accrue to people who are smarter than others? And I saw from my upbringing that, like, A, that's not always true. Money accrues randomly, and it also doesn't prevent sadness, cancer, depression, divorce. And so um, I've been able to kind of focus 
in tech about what are the values and what are the projects I want to be a part of more so than, you know, what is there to gain from, you know, from being here personally. Yeah. Would, Would you, you ever uh, consider moving back? I love New York. I, we have a daughter, a uh, five and a half year old daughter, and I'd love for her to feel like New York is a second home, but I don't think we would move back. Now that's totally different from the question about if Hunter was you know, 21 now, where would he be living? I think it's very possible that if I was growing up you know, post-college right now that I'd stay in New York or, or LA uh, versus San Francisco. Why? Well, my introduction to tech wasn't command line programming it was actually desktop publishing. Um, and so for me, technology is a creative tool. And uh, there's, I think, a critical mass of people using technology to be creative in New York and LA that would have attracted me. I'm 43, so that wasn't necessarily the case uh, in sort of the early 90s when I was you know, making an undergrad decision and in the second half of the 90s where I was sort of making the beginning of my work decisions. Yeah. So let's talk about the beginning of those work decisions. Sunil and I know you and know of you, and you've got a wonderful reputation in our industry. But can you let everybody know like how you got into what you're doing today and, and really give us a highlight of what you do right now, what you're most excited about? Yeah. So right now I'm about four and a half, five years into a venture fund called Homebrew that a former colleague and friend of mine co-founded uh, at the beginning of 2013. But my path to that wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, desire or interest to always end up sort of on the investing side. I spent the first part of my career being more on the sort of the building, the doing side. And there were really kind of like two seminal moments, I think, that helped me figure out how I wanted to spend my time and who I was going to be. The first was one of confusion. Uh, my mother is an artist. My father did more traditional business. And so I spent adolescence and maybe some of my earlier professional years trying to figure out if I was left brain or right brain until I finally stumbled upon consumer tech. And I realized that actually being a little bit of sort of bilingual in both uh, art and science, you know, that sense of understanding that technology is an amazing tool to build things with. But at the end of the day, if that product is touching a person, then you have to understand people, emotions, reactions, you know. And so for me, kind of consumer tech as a intersection of, you know, sort of the left brain, the right brain ended up being kind of what pulled me into do a second life, sort of a, a virtual world that we started building uh, in sort of 2000. And then the second thing was that I realized that I loved scale. That one of the most exciting things about technology, especially as the internet was maturing and access to it off of not just, you know, computers, but phones was starting to take off, that you could build things that maybe could reach, you know, every living person. And that's one of the reasons that I sort of ended up spending about a decade at Google, uh, a large part of it at YouTube, because I sort of felt like, man, you know, here's a chance to get essentially the entire population of the internet, you know, as a daily active user, yeah. you know, if I can't figure out how to get everybody to watch, you know, at least a three, four minute video once a day, yeah. like I'm doing something wrong. Did you find YouTube through Google or did Google find you through YouTube? Uh, I found YouTube through Google. So I joined Google in 2003 and I'd been working at sort of, you know, Google HQ and Mountain View for a few years during a period of really, really rapid growth. At the end of 2006, I started to feel like maybe Google was wonderful, but very, very large. Uh, it had grown, I think at the time, to maybe about 12,000 employees. And um, the YouTube acquisition closed at the end of that year. And I had been working on some projects that had video components. And mm -hmm. so I sort of you know, drove over to YouTube one day and I was trying to make the argument that there were some things I was working on that maybe they wanted to take ownership of because 
I was thinking about leaving. A few conversations, and they basically said, the YouTube founder said, well, you know, these projects are, you know, kind of interesting, but actually what we'd really like to keep is you. And so they were about 65 people, point of acquisition, so it's still relatively small, especially for the first few years after the acquisition, 2007, 2008, 2009. We were allowed to operate very independently from Google, separate campus, separate organizational structure. And so that seemed like a really interesting opportunity. I knew how Google worked and I could bring some of that knowledge over to this new acquisition, but you know, we could operate as a startup, just one with a very, very large benefactor. Did you think that YouTube was going to be what YouTube is today? So YouTube was about 18 months old when I got there. You know, it was, it was acquired pretty quickly. And it was certainly a phenomena already. It was doing about 100 million playbacks a day, um, which was far and away the largest sort of online video service. But there were three things that to think back now, you know, it's, it's sort of laughable, but the predominant opinion was that Google had dramatically overpaid. Because first, this was you know a fad, not durable. Second, it was a bunch of dogs on skateboards. They would derisively talk about dogs on skateboard videos. Um, so it was never going to make money. But the amount of money you have to pay to make a good dog on skateboard video well, today is crazy. I was going to say, you know how many dog helmets we we're going to sell? And third, there were a bunch of uh, lawsuits and threatened lawsuits from content holders who accused YouTube of being on the wrong side of the DMCA. In short, you know, over the five years that uh, I ran the product team over there, we went from 100 million playbacks a day to more than 4 billion. We went from a near zero, you know, revenue stream to a multi-billion dollar annual revenue stream. We beat every uh, lawsuit, including a very large one from Viacom, that proved that sort of YouTube was not only being, you know, responsible okay. in their attempt to help rights owners manage copyright, but actually we built a system that allowed rights owners to profit from fan-uploaded works right. versus just having to take them right. off the site. In your decade there at Google with YouTube, how many DMCA takedown notifications did you get personally? I, I didn't get any personally. I got uh, named in a bunch of different lawsuits, but like, you know, I was always in some sort of litigation hold, both from AdSense and from YouTube. <laughs> but fortunately, all of them, I think, were, you know, sort of people just looking to try to get a payday from Google. And one of the things that I, I'm really proud of Google having done is they were one of the companies that, you know, stood up to and continues to stand up to some of the patent troll lawsuits versus just trying to settle them and, yeah. and go away. And so it was a pleasure to sort of, you know, give some time and energy towards being a good citizen of the Internet. Yeah. Since you brought up emotion and all of the things that go into product, Let's get let's get out of the warm up and into the into the real Woo! deal. <laughs> let's do it. Your reaction to the the more memo and uh, and how Google handled it. So you know, I should say that I I haven't talked to anybody at Google. I don't have any information that wasn't publicly shared. Right. So this is sort of my observer. When I saw the memo and then he was fired a few days later, I was fifty one percent sure that it was the right thing to do. And that was informed largely by, during my experience at Google, I saw lots of people raise lots of contentious issues in manners that were very productive and were ultimately meant to either educate themselves about a question that they had or try to build momentum, discussion around uh, an idea that they wanted to steward through Google. And the nature of the way that he, he 
got his ideas across in the format he used didn't pattern match against any of those attempts. So for me, it, it didn't feel like a real desire as an individual to create change. It felt like a desire as an individual to make a statement and a statement that you know, was ultimately harmful, I think, to Google as an employee base. His actions in the weeks following made me 99% sure that it was the right reaction. And I mean, at the end of the day, these are, you know, we talk about companies' reactions, but it's people's reactions, right? So I, you know, I worked with Sundar, I worked with these folks, I think they're good individuals and they try as best to make the right outcome. And in this case, you know, I think they were absolutely correct. And I hope that they're able to actually use it as a discussion point uh, within Google for, well, let's talk about what are ways we can raise topics that we might disagree on and what does a constructive conversation look like? I don't think, this individual, that was his goal, or would have been the right shepherd uh, for a discussion like that. Since we're also talking about YouTube, going a little bit out of order here, how would you react to people who say that YouTube was partially at least responsible for the destruction of media? And I'll further qualify that by saying, you know, people are now conditioned to believe things should be free, or, you know, they can skip the ad really quick, and uh, we're seeing this in, in writing, you know, media. You well, I mean, fundamentally, this. so I, I have a tension, right? So uh, on one end, ad-supported is an incredible model in the sense that it makes content free for individuals. So from a pure sort of, you know, economic value, mm -hmm. ad-supported media, you know, has led to an amazing amount of wonderful, wonderful content uh, that's made freely available to, you know, a global population. On the other hand, I'm also very much a believer that content has value and that the creators of that content should be able to realize that value. You know, I spent the first few years on AdSense because I wanted to figure out what was the best system to help uh, websites of all sizes that were building quality content, help them to monetize that audience in a way that was consistent with uh, their goals as a site and also respectful to the time and attention of the audience. And so you had these, you know, not just the CNNs of the world, but you had, you know, AdSense gave rise to mommy bloggers. It gave rise to, you know, sort of yeah. vertical content sites in a way that before, you know, you never would have been able to do. And I think similarly, YouTube has given rise to all these different types of video content that before would have either had to get approval from somebody in a suit to bless that idea. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have had the chance just to create, upload, and build an audience, build a community, and would have been competing over what was essentially a very scarce shelf space, a fixed number of cable channels. And so if you're a vegan, is there... 10 minutes of vegan content on the Food Network each week. I mean, you're not going to turn on Bobby Flay and Guy Fieri and all this stuff, right? But if you type in vegan recipes on YouTube, you could probably watch 2,000 hours yeah. of vegan cooking. And so I'd like consumers to step up and be willing to put not just their attention, but their dollars behind the content they care about. And I think those two models, you know, sort of can live harmoniously. Yeah. So the answer is yes, YouTube has led to the destruction of media as we have known it, but it's all for the better. Like, is there downside, well, though? What you really are able to find out is what content is uh, substitutable and what content is not substitutable, right? So let's talk about television. People sometimes talk about, oh, four to five hours of TV that Americans watch a day. And that gets treated very monolithically, where actually you have to sort of break that down. Hour one of somebody's TV diet is non-substitutable and direct, right? I want to watch Game of Thrones. If I want to watch Game of Thrones, I'm going to jump through hoops to be able to watch Game of Thrones. I'm going to pay HBO. I'm going to install an app. I can't go to YouTube and say Game of Thrones, and YouTube suggests, well, hey, how would you like to watch Hercules the Animated Series? It's like, no, 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 that's not what I want. It's, there's, you know, I'm going to find Game of Thrones. Hour two, hour three starts to be a little bit more substitutable, a little bit more habit-forming, right? Like, uh, I, I want to watch something funny. 
eh, do I want to watch this sitcom, that sitcom? Do I want to watch stand-up comedy? Basically, I'm looking for an emotional satisfaction where maybe all of a sudden, like, you know, there is some free content that is better than paid content. Hours four and five are like background noise. In that case, like I'm just re-watching sports highlights, music videos, whatever. And so I think as you look at sort of the high intent, low substitution, which is sometimes mass media, the things that we all gather around, but sometimes for people is content that speaks to a specific interest and that they're willing to pay for. Fitness content, for example, if you, you know, want to do yeah. a yoga routine at home with a very you know, particular instructor. That stuff, I think, will always tend to have a pay component or a blended model. And as you go down that curve and you have more substitution, you have content that's you know, sort of uh, second screen background, so on and so forth, I mean, that stuff is essentially yeah. free or that stuff is subsidized by the idea of, oh, you watched the music video, now see me on tour. Or you, you watched the Red Bull uh, you know, BMX highlights. That's essentially branded sponsored content. Yeah. And so I just think that the business model starts to map more and more specifically against the segment of prioritization that it has as a, as a consumer. Yeah. That being said, I think sometimes it's in the nomenclature, right? So, so for example, like, what are we doing? We're recording a podcast. Um, podcasts, we've started to be trained to think of something called a podcast as free, right? Serial, you know, a very popular podcast. It's season shows and episodes, right? In terms of amount of content you consume, it's the same as a Netflix original content or an audiobook. Yeah. You should be able to charge $19.95 for that. But if we call it a podcast, we, you know, oh, what? No, like, why would I pay for that? Isn't that supposed to be free? Yeah. If I called it, you know, uh, season one of this original mystery series, maybe I'm plunking down $9.95 for it. So I think sometimes it's not just the content itself, it's the branding, the positioning, the distribution format mm -hmm. that irrationally shapes our willingness to pay. And that goes back to like when I was saying, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is the intersection of art and science, right? It's understanding at the end of the day, like people are rational and irrational beings. And so how do you get them to interact with your content, your brand in new ways? You know what I, I love about this content? So I've never met you in person. We've never met in person, but I've paid attention to what you've been writing for a while and uh, followed you on Twitter and different places. Um, when I think about the satire that Sunil wrote maybe a year ago, that's the namesake of this podcast, kind of underlying that is actually the critique of potentially Silicon Valley. And I think that critique is, hey, there's all these amazing things that are happening, and we have a choice to take a look at it and either say that it is ridiculous and we're pessimistic because we think that it's heading in the wrong direction, or we can say that it's optimistic. And what I really enjoy about listening to you and talking to you is that you are an optimist. I was, I was wondering where you were going to go with that. I was like, I'm absolutely an optimist. You are an absolute optimist. So see, this is a fascinating part of the culture that we live in here. Not everybody is an optimist. I'll give you an example. Sometimes I'm an optimist, sometimes I'm not. I, I suppose we're probably all in the middle in some capacity. But uh, I have three kids. Two of them started in different schools. One of them started in high school. And I got an email from the superintendent, from the principals at both of their schools, the two oldest. And that email in the body of the email said, please remind your children that they can't use food delivery apps during the school day. And I read this email, and I'm like, holy crap. Like, is this really what we've done? Like, is this good? Like, I don't know if it's good. And so I talked to my wife about it, and Sunil and I have been talking about it. And we, we really think that there's this kind of broader challenge that we have culturally here, which is to make a decision if we're optimist yeah. or optimist. I think I'm a 
optimist that demands accountability or like self-reflection. A, I assume my optimism is somewhat of a privilege, right? Like uh, I've had a, a relatively good life. Sometimes I serve on like diversity and venture capital panels and I usually go last after, you know, three different men or women who look very different than me talk about their path to venture. And I sort of say, I'm a, you know, tall, white, straight male who uh, went to Stanford and worked at Google. As you can imagine, it was tough for me to get a job in venture. Yeah. And so I think I get to be an optimist because you know, the world appears, you know, open to me. Yeah. But that being said, I also just generally believe that technology inherently has properties that are about, you know, creation, access to information, which isn't without its downside, isn't without its, its you know, sort of troubling use cases, but is fundamentally good. I'm not in sort of the notion of like, well, technology is just a tool and it can be used for good or bad. I'm like, no, technology is good. It can also be used for bad, but yeah. like its natural state is goodness. Yeah. I think that comes with a whole bunch of responsibilities as members of the technology community, as parents, I'm a parent as well, as citizens of San Francisco, and I take all of those you know, quite seriously. Part of the name of Homebrew, our, our venture fund, is a nod back to the Homebrew Computing Club of the yeah. 70s and 80s, where a bunch of PC enthusiasts would meet mostly on Stanford's campus um, to tinker. Yeah. And it's where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met. It's where a bunch of, you know, sort of early, you know, what we'd sort of think of as, you know, tech founders got their start. And for me, it's a reminder, A, about the community aspect of what we do, and B, even though we're so focused on disruption and looking ahead, that we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us, and we're benefiting from the work and sort of pay-it-forward attitude that they had, and so that we have the same obligation for the next generation. Yeah. So, I mean, you see a lot of companies, you've worked for a lot of companies, you have your finger on the pulse of technology and really culture based on your Twitter feed. I have a particular view of the world that gets expressed through my public... <laughs> You're like the Bill Simmons of uh, venture capital, right Ooh, at the intersection geez, of, uh, of uh, pop culture and technology. What are some things that you see that are happening in San Francisco right now, or really in Silicon Valley, that are likely to affect the rest of the country at some point in the near future? We'll have this podcast three years from now, and we'll say, whoa, that happened faster than we thought. Um, so, you know, I think the obvious answers are around, you know, sort of automation and, you know, but I, I think there's a different question around, let's call it education. One thing that I hope that our government would drive and that technology in Silicon Valley would be a, a heavy participant in is sort of a, a moonshot that rethinks education, our education systems to support employment, job skilling, and support that as an ongoing process for individuals, not something that occurs during a narrow period of time in one's adolescence and maybe into their early 20s if they're able to go to a two-year, four-year, you know, or other type of college experience. I have a five-and-a-half-year-old, you know, it's sort of the question about in her schooling, will code be taught just like, you know, numbers and letters, you know, reading and writing? And my answer is like, yes, but it, what I'm hoping is taught is capability and comfort, not any one particular skill or language, yeah. because whatever coding she learns is going to be irrelevant by the time that she has to think about her professional career. But what I do want her to have is a comfort with technology and a mentality that whatever skills she holds today don't necessarily you know, guarantee her relevance in perpetuity. Yeah. We have an education system that is not only you know, sort of incongruent with that, but you know, in a lot of ways pushes back to say you're only able to yeah. acquire skills and value during a small period of time, and then that value gets exp you know, exploited in the
at the fringes, there are investors who are investing in and entrepreneurs who are starting different types of training, education, you know, starting with rethinking college all the way through to, you know, rethinking professional training and things like that. But it's one of those areas where the enormity of the challenge is one that I don't believe the private sector can solve on its own. And prior to last year's presidential election, some of the fun conversations I was having with Clinton's policy team were around these issues of like, how do you rethink about the economic levers uh, that the government has in terms of Pell Grants and other programs and different types of tax credits to incentivize education as a, you know, continual sort of ongoing goal and and what would public-private partnerships look like there. Uh, Obviously, since the election, I haven't had I haven't had similar conversations with the current administration. Yeah. But when we talk about job creation, when we talk even about maybe preserving jobs that, you know, are going to be disappearing, I'd love to complement any of that with sort of a, you know, like an education moonshot. Because like I said, I, I'm a technology optimist. So I think if we give technology the chance to do what it is going to do, but understand that the byproduct can sometimes be, you know, disruption and disruption isn't always a positive thing. How does the public and private sector combine to support during those phase changes? So I'm a middle-class person in Cleveland, Ohio, right now listening to this podcast. By the way, as you know, I went to high school in Cleveland. I love Cleveland. I'm glad that Kyrie's gone. Sorry, LeBron's (laughs) going to be gone in a year or two. You're going to be back to being Cleveland as we know it. What is the one thing I take away from listening to this podcast from Hunter Technology Visionary. Teach your children that technology is uh, not just a tool of consumption, but a tool of creation. And know that Silicon Valley isn't there just to take jobs away, but wants to be a partner to thinking about how to make sure that we have a, a healthy economy, not just wealthy technologists. And why should I trust you and not be skeptical of you? Oh, you should always be, you should be skeptical. Of course you should be skeptical. I think ultimately you have to look and you have to ask questions of what sacrifices are technology companies and technology workers making to ensure that that reality can happen together. And that's where I think citizenship comes into play. And the first point of leverage are employees. If you're working for a technology company that you think doesn't have a set of values that matches your own. Um, You walk out the door every night and you're most of the value in that company and you can decide whether you come back the next day or not. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're always going to agree 100% with every decision your company makes. You shouldn't be so naive to think is that that is a prerequisite of, you know, employment. But, you know, you should have a company that's willing to articulate what it wants to achieve. And part of those goals should be paying back into the system that they benefit from. Uh, an amazing point. I think that like being an optimist is really important. Being skeptical is really important. We talk about, I work at Mozilla and we talk about the idea of trust first, but be open to be able to be verified. And I think that idea of there's a humanity in kind of every decision that you make. And it's a really about people. It's not about companies, but like as long as you're able to verify. I think tech in general is sort of like well-intended, but tone deaf. And sometimes that tone deafness can be because we're in an echo chamber. Sometimes that tone deafness comes from sort of the relatively young age of participants in this industry. We still think we're the underdog. Technology as an industry is not the underdog anymore. And we have to understand sort of the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, thank you, Uncle Ben. Uh, Spider-Man reference. I'm sure you guys get it, but I can't assume the audience. Uh, And so, you know, I think a lot about the gold, what that means. Look, uh, I'm saying this from a place where, you know, I take money from endowments, charitable foundations, so on and so forth. I invest in and I try to get them back a multiple of it. Obviously, I'm excited about doing that for them because I think they have a great mission. I'm also excited to get paid myself 
Yeah. One day, hopefully, eventually. What thrills me, what gets me excited about the idea of being successful in this phase of my career isn't because there's other material things that I look forward to buying. It's, you know, when I left Google, I lost some of the ability to write checks to the nonprofits that I really care about, you know, because because I yeah. took less of a salary to go start my own fund. And I'd love to be able to, like, go back and write those checks again. Whereas 10 years ago, it was Zuck in the hoodie, right? And it was social network, and I'm the CEO bitch. That was the aspirational archetype. Now you're talking about that same individual, you know, married with two kids or one and another on the way. I forget whether he had the second kid, who have, you know, pledged billions of dollars to a, you know, philanthropic institute who've been, you know, well-intended in their desire to better understand what's going on across America. And, you know, hopefully those types of decisions, those types of role models, you know, become powerful. I know things will have changed in a durable fashion. When I go to a party and instead of people bragging about having gotten into the seed round of Airbnb, they're bragging about having gotten to the seed round of homelessness, right? In the sense of like, oh, I found this big problem. I found an organization that's interested in solving it. And I got in early and I was early into seeing that this was like really mattered. And I put in sweat and dollars, not just like I got into the good (coughs) deals and I made some money. That's an amazing takeaway. Like the idea that it is all the things and have civic responsibility. Well, think about the defaults because I'm a product guy, right? What are the tools we use for recruiting? LinkedIn, angel lists, you know, recruiting stuff. What if there was a box that basically said this company does or does not match employee donations and here's the amount or this company did or did not sign on to, you know, a brief opposing the immigration reform, you know, that type of stuff. You know, as a job seeker, you could filter by those things versus just filter by like stage of company, size of company, industry. I think we can make bold choices in ensuring that the products we create challenge our industry uh, and start to set a set of expectations for what a good citizen looks like, what a good employee looks like, what a good company looks like. Yeah. So we have a few quick hit questions here to wrap wrap up for you. your favorite two Twitter follows, because I know you're pretty active on, on Twitter. Oh, good. Okay. One's a humble brag. Steve Ballmer followed me, so I figured I should follow him back. <laughs> um, just in case he wanted to DM me about the Clippers, you know, or maybe I can lob in and be like, hey, Steve, I'm in town. Long time, uh, long time tweeter, first time caller. Uh, can I come to a game? Made with AR kit. I think that's the handle. Basically, so, you know, Apple in the next uh, version of iOS has built this SDK to help people start to get into the world of uh, augmented reality. And people are, you know, building just these incredible demos with it. And there's a Twitter account that essentially aggregates (laughs) examples of tools and demos and betas that people have. And it's amazing. It's sort of this little view into the future. Cool. Uh, Favorite author? Okay. Uh, what's the guy? David David Gann, G-A-N-N, who did um, Lost City of Z, and the last one was mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon, mm-hmm. which was basically about, uh, in Oklahoma in the 1920s, I think it was, oil was found on land that uh, indigenous Native Americans had been sort of, you know, corralled to. So they were the rightful owners of these mineral rights, but many of the townspeople sort of systematically uh, murdered the Indians in order to get access to the oil money, and the federal government ended up stepping in from an investigation standpoint. It was one of the first 
crimes that the FBI really took responsibility for. And so this guy, he, he writes very infrequently, but um, I was a history major, but the way that I sort of described the history I studied was no names, dates, and wars, just stories. And so, you know, in my fantasy life, if I had sort of, you know, taken the path of having become, you know, a writer, um, this is the type of book I would have written. I got one more for you. The biggest myth about the Silicon Valley, the rest of the world kind of ascribes to that you want to debunk on this podcast? The myth of the overnight success. Sometimes you see the thing that tips and it all of a sudden gets, you know, big very quickly and it looks and feels like that company like just hit sort of this amazing growth spurt and now everything is easy and you never, never see the 999 nights that predated that overnight success. I also think that folks attribute a whole lot of coordination and like strategy to decisions that are sometimes more made in the moment with incomplete information. Reporters who cover the tech space like always assume that like, I remember seeing this at Google, that there was some like master plan. And there's not a master plan. There's a bunch of smart people operating under a single strategic goal and most importantly, a set of values that allow them to try to make decisions that they think are consistent with that company's uh, ethics moving really fast. Yeah. And sometimes those people like within the company don't even coordinate, let alone sort of have some really well thought out five to 10 year <laughs> plan. And so when, when these companies stumble, very often it's having made the wrong decision at the time, even though it was well intended. Now, there's of course plenty of examples of folks who are taking shortcuts or treating one another in disrespectful manners. And those things, you know, we have to sort of, I think, identify and clean up. But for the most part, it's people working with technologies, trying to do things they couldn't do before and, you know, Make, making their way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from you know, all your worries, you know, sure could help a lot. Wouldn't it be nice to get away? Wouldn't it be nice to go someplace I don't know. everybody this, knows your name? This is now we're reaching, uh, this might be edited out. Hunter, uh, it's been awesome having you here. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thanks for being a part of the community in San Francisco, and thanks for being an optimist. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for having me, and um, I, I appreciate it. One of the values that's important to me is accessibility. So I'm just available at hunterwalk at gmail.com, and I try to answer every email that looks like it was at least halfway personalized to me. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Thank All you. right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. We are always looking for great topic suggestions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at info at thebolditalic.com if you have suggestions on either. Thanks for spending some of your time today with us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of season one. <laughs>